Good afternoon, everyone, and a very warm welcome to St Paul's Cathedral for this Sunday forum session. My name is Rosemary Morton, and I'm one of the clergy here at St Paul's, and it's my great pleasure to be here today to chair this session and to welcome today's speaker. John Pritchard was Bishop of Oxford until 2014. Prior to that, he read law at St Peter's College, but whilst there recognised a call to ordained ministry and went on to gain qualifications in theology at Oxford, Cambridge and Durham. A pretty no-mean feat for anyone, I think. He was ordained in 1972 and is the author of many books on the Christian life, including the book that we're going to hear about today, Living Easter Through the Year. We're really excited to be welcoming John today and we're looking forward to what he's going to tell us about living Easter through the year. So would you please join me in welcoming John Pritchard. Rosemary, thank you very much and, uh, and thank you for coming. It, it does seem to be a very um, awkward time really, um, but you come, so thank you. Good to see you. I've come a long way. I've come from Richmond in North Yorkshire. Not the local one, too expensive, uh, but North Yorkshire is a very nice place to live, though it's nothing like as warm as it is down here. So I'm uh, pleased to be here, but with a daughter living in, um, in Hampstead as well, and uh, three little grandchildren there, it gives me the opportunity to, to see them too, so lovely uh, to be with you. Um, I, I heard a, a lovely story recently about um, a famous lawyer called F.E. Smith. Anyone heard of him? Um, so a famous guy who apparently was a good friend of Winston Churchill and the story goes that Effie Smith was in the, the House of Commons on uh, one occasion soon after lunch and came across Winston Churchill rather filling the chair that he was sitting in uh, he'd had a very good lunch and he was rather rotund anyway but he looked, looked rather large and Effie Smith said to, um, to Winston Churchill he said uh, so are you expecting a boy or a girl Winston and uh, Winston Churchill said, well, if it's, a, if it's a boy, I'll call it John, and if it's a girl, I'll call it Mary. But if, as I rather suspect, it's just a bag of hot air, I'll call it F.E. Smith. <laughs> um, I hope, it's my intention not to give you a bag of hot air <laughs> uh, today in this uh, hour we've got, um, but I do have a, a fascination with the way that Easter is kind of the forgotten festival, strangely, although it's our great festival, although it's our king of festivals, um, it gets shortchanged, I think. And so one of my desires in ministry uh, has been to kind of embed Easter more fully at the heart uh, of our lives as Christians. Uh, obviously, Christmas lasts about three months, doesn't it? You know, you get your first catalogue in August um, and, uh, and then it just builds from there. And so you're very conscious of, of Christmas all the time. Um, Easter comes upon us rather strangely because we've been through the sombre season of Lent uh, and we've had the, the very serious and wonderful Holy Week and we've been through the traumas of, of Good Friday then we have this one day of ecstasy, um, Easter Day. And then it's a bank holiday and we start thinking about our holidays. Or we jet off to the sun or whatever. And, and Easter's gone. And although liturgically it remains, stays with us, um, 
nevertheless in our experience it seems to uh, die their death so here is uh, Easter which is actually the air that we breathe as Christians it's the screensaver of our lives isn't it as, as Christians um, if there were no Easter we would not be here uh, this lunchtime so the stakes are very high with uh, Easter and our whole faith is is rooted there and without it uh, we have nothing but um, a fake messiah who had a very horrible death and this Easter event uh, is not just a kind of a first of its kind in history it's not something that would go into the uh, into the Guinness Book of Records as you know raised from the dead first recorded occurrence uh, it's not like that it's the first in principle other resurrections or other returns to life you know Lazarus etc um, are temporary transient utterly different from this first in principle um, a defeating of death as it were it's also not just a past event uh, not just an event like later today I hope we'll be saying England beat the West Indies in the 220, 2020 final <laughs> uh, etc for those who are not cricketers that's the illusion um, you know or we join the common market in I don't know when was it uh, 1972 or something like that you know it's not an event in past history like that it's not Thomas for instance you know would not have said gosh so the dead do rise after all how interesting you know he was on his knees saying my Lord and my God so it's an utterly different kind of it's not just an event in history but an event that transforms people including us and nor is it just a you know conventional happy ending story um, so that you know it was erasing the mistake of the cross uh, sorry about that that went wrong we can put that right you know we'll we'll raise Jesus it's not like that either because the cross was utterly central um, and the and the resurrection um, brings the denouement to the whole of Jesus's life so it's not putting right something that was wrong it's it's moving it on to the completion uh, of all that Jesus had to do so what we have in the resurrection is this utterly new story you know it, it isn't one story that's just continued to the next stage there's a gap there's a hole it's called Easter Saturday but it is an utter darkness it is a my mother-in-law used to hate that day because it was the only day on which Jesus wasn't alive in her chronology, as it were, her calendar. And so there is this, this complete gap. There's the genuine ending. There's the profound darkness. And then there's the resurrection. So it's a new story. It's a, it's a new creation. And it's that newness. It's that sense of newness, the sense that everything is gift, um, that I'm, I'm wanting us to live with longer than just that one morning of Easter day I don't want um, in the short time I've got to you know to get into um, all the evidence for the resurrection kind of stuff we can we can talk about that if you'd like to um, question that afterwards but um, 
there is plenty of evidence around. There's, there's lots we can, we, can look, we can look to the empty tomb and say, well, nobody actually ever questioned that the tomb was empty. The question was, why was it empty? You know, had, had the Jewish authorities taken the, the body away? Well, then why didn't they produce it? Immediately, these silly rumours started going around. You know, did, did the Roman authorities take the body away? Well, same thing. You know, why not just produce it when things started getting out of control? Um, you know, we have this empty tomb and all sorts of other things we can say about the empty tomb, but it doesn't seem to have been questioned by the early tradition. It's interesting, actually, isn't it, that, that there's no evidence in the first three centuries at any rate of anyone going to the tomb to venerate it. Whereas usually you go to the place of the de- of death and events, you know, that are significant. There's a, a huge tradition of veneration um, of the dead. But no, no one goes there because Jesus is raised. Um, it's interesting when you read the accounts as well. The accounts of the resurrection are so fresh, so new, so different. Um, and they're not drawing on the Old Testament as so much of the rest of the... Uh, uh, of the gospel does even the, the accounts of the, of the crucifixion drawing on the Old Testament here is something completely new you know, there are lots of things we can talk we could talk about on another occasion uh, about the empty tomb the empty tomb therefore is necessary but it's not sufficient so then you say well what about those appearances um, extraordinary range of appearances over a prolonged period of time to individuals, to pairs, uh, to groups, uh, to 500 at one time, you know, all sorts of different experiences, none of which have the kind of appearance of hallucination, um, ghostly appearance, you know, or memory, but the vividness, the, uh, the touch, the, or the invitation to touch, and in some cases the touch, and the eating, and, and so on, they are of a different order um, from the hallucinations that one might have after a particularly uh, bad night or whatever. So there's a whole lot of stuff we could look at um, about the, uh, the appearances. And then you have to say, here's another piece of evidence, the disciples themselves, extraordinary uh, before and after story, isn't it, with the disciples? where before you have this frightened group of, uh, of men who have beaten a hasty retreat when the crucifixion came close, who are scared out of their wits that they'd be the next people up on the cross, who are hiding around the city, and then they just emerge and conquer the world. You know, within 300 years, even the Roman Empire um, has given in and become officially Christian. The, the turnaround in those disciples needs some extraordinary event, and not, I would suggest, just the revival of memory, um, the realising that Jesus got it right after all, um, you know, a spiritual resurrection or a, an emotional response. I think something much more than that was needed to send those people to their deaths, because all but John, it would seem, died fairly nasty deaths for that faith. Or another piece of evidence you could look at would be the, um, just the existence of the church itself, wouldn't it be? Because there is a, a church which now has um, 2.3 billion members. 
that's quite a growth from 11 people on Good Friday night. Um, you know, 2.3 billion members and a church which is growing at the rate of 70,000 more Christians every day of the year, net growth um, <clears throat> worldwide. You know, huge growth going on in the church. A third of the world's population names the name of Christ. Could all of that be based on a lie? I would suggest not. So there's the empty tomb, there's the appearance of the disciples, uh, to the disciples, uh, there's the change in the disciples, there's the existence of the church. Um, there's the remarkable things that people were saying about Jesus. People who'd known him, people who'd, you know, done a washing up with him, had barbecues on the beach, played frisbee with him, you know, whatever they did uh, on, the, on the route, on the path. You know, these people who'd known him were calling him the most outrageously extravagant, kingly, divine names um, just a few years after his death and resurrection. Um, something, again, sufficient to justify that kind of extraordinary um, naming uh, of Jesus. And I suppose, sixthly, you could also just talk about the experience of Christians, couldn't you, and say, there are millions of people who throughout history have said in some way or other, however you describe it, they've encountered a living Christ. Um, and they can no more deny that than they can deny their own parenthood. You know, it's there. It's been part of their experience. So we have a lot of things we could, we could look to. But as I say, I'm not intending to go into all that really. That was just very much uh, in passing. Um, I used to work with Tom Wright. Um, he was Bishop of Durham and I was his suffragan uh, when I was Bishop of Charo. And um, Tom, of course, is writing this, this huge series of books on the, uh, uh, the Gospels and uh, Paul and the people of God. Um, and he thought he'd do the resurrection in the last 80 pages of, uh, of one of these books. But he didn't quite manage it. It emerged as uh, the resurrection of the Son of God, 800 pages um, and, you know, wonderful book as it is. Um, and he writes so readably as well. I wouldn't suggest starting at page one and going right the way through to 800, though. It is a long read, um, but fascinating. Um, so there's lots in, in there. Reasons for confidence, therefore. But what I'm really wanting to, us to think about is, is how to live that experience, how to uh, enjoy, how to inhabit that experience and make resurrection more of the, the touchstone um, of our faith, the, uh, the air that we breathe, as I say. So I want to say one other thing. Um, people do sometimes get worried about the four different accounts that you have uh, of the resurrection uh, in the four Gospels, very different accounts as they are, um, though with common themes all the way through. I would suggest that after England's great victory this afternoon over West Indies in the 2020 final, World Cup final, uh, there will be different um, ways of recording that, of, of uh, reporting uh, on that victory. Um, depending on whether you're a West Indian uh, or an English person or um, someone neutral, you, know, you just get different accounts because you're looking at it from different angles. And I like to think sometimes of these four Gospels as like... You know, four people watching a, um, a football match. 
And Matthew is rather like the person in the stands who's got the big view, the, the overall view, the big picture. Matthew is kind of looking at the, the origins um, of this whole story of God's activity, um, which comes to a culmination in Christ. And he's seeing the whole picture through, the Jew, through Jewish eyes. Um, and he's drawing his conclusions from a, uh, from a deep story. He's, as it were, able to see all, all the corner flags on the, on the pitch. And he's showing why they're also, why that story is so significant. Um, but then you have Mark. He's really got the view from behind the goal. Um, you know, very vivid, very immediate, um, very real, as it were, very um, uh, kind of, um, you know, the bustle that's going on on the, on the pitch is right there in his face, as it were. Um, unfortunately, his report, well, the end of it got lost on his way back from, uh, uh, from the match. Do you know the, the lost ending of Mark? Um, well, I think it's a lost ending. I mean, some think it finishes at verse 8, 16 verse 8, um, which just says that they went away, uh, the women went away in fear. Um, however, it's a very vivid description. It's kind of, it's a tabloid um, description, I suppose. But then you've got Luke. Luke has got the view from the media box. Um, and he's the one who's got a story to tell, which he wants to tell accurately, because he wants to persuade Theophilus um, that these Christi- this Christian story can be trusted, and these Christians can be trusted. So he's trying to tell the story um, in as, uh, as honest a way as he can, having got all the facts that he can, uh, and giving an honest match report. Though he is a journalist with flair, is our Luke, um, because you can see that he's, um, he's one to convince through hard history. But he also has these lovely touches, you know, the walk to Emmaus, um, his concern for women, um, his concern with the injury list uh, as well on the, on the pitch, you know, the physician. Um, so there's, there's a different view from the media box. And then there's John. His view is really from the manager's bench, I think, because um, he's the one who's got the inside story. He knows what the, um, the guys out there are thinking and doing. He knows what Jesus thought and did. He was close. Um, So he knows the kind of strategy and tactics of the game. He knows the people. Um, So he's the manager on the bench. So do you see what I mean? Four just different views from the the stands, from the behind the goal, from the media box, from the manager's bench. Just different uh, ways of looking at it. Of course they will be different. um, But the essence, the heart of it, uh, the empty tomb, the appearance of the disciples, the angelic messengers, the women having a key role, the apostles to the apostles and so on, you know, um, all that is common. So, I think one of the ways of responding to um, the resurrection is through the arts. Because I'm, I'm never going to, none of us is ever going to understand what this resurrection is about. It's far too big for us. Um, all we have is a kind of prism, um, the resurrection. As the light shines on this prism, the light of the resurrection, it's just split into, you know, a, a thousand pieces. Um, and we catch a, a few of those pieces. And 
And I think one of the ways of responding, therefore, um, is, is through the arts, is just letting um, poetry and music and, uh, and, and theatre and, you know, painting, art, you know, do, do the telling for us, really. I want to read, therefore, one or two poems as we go through this 45 minutes or so together. Here's one um, by John Updike. Do you remember the, uh, the novelist, the Rabbit series? Um, John Updike. And he's, he's taking this uh, story of resurrection and saying, listen, guys, this is real. And he takes it to its logical conclusion. Make, it's this poem is called Seven Stanzas for Easter. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It was not the flowers, each soft spring recurrent. It was not as his spirit in the mouths and fuddled eyes of the eleven apostles. It was as his flesh, ours. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor, analogy, sidestepping, trans- sidestepping transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back, not papier-mâché, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. And if we will have an angel at the tomb, make it a real angel, weighty with Max Planck's quanta, vivid with hair, opaque in the dawn light, robed in real linen, spun on a definite loom. Let us not seek to make it less monstrous for our own convenience or our sense of beauty, lest Awakened in one unthinkable hour, we are embarrassed by the miracle and crushed by remonstrance. Do you see what I mean? He takes it to its limit. Not sure I entirely go with it, but I I don't know. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart. Mm. However, um, fascinating. Here's a, you know, not a a theologian, uh, but writing... Um, of his conviction of the reality, the materiality of whatever this spiritual body was. Anyway, uh, the arts. Let me just move on to something about the implications of the resurrection. The implications for us, uh, for our, um, our lives. I'm going to offer five. And the first one is this. If the resurrection is, as I'm saying it is, then we have a transforming friendship. Um, Gregory of Nyssa, you know, the most important thing 
is to be God's friend. Um, D.H. Lawrence, all that matters is to be at one with the living God. And this, this living God has in the mouth of Jesus said we can call him Jesus, our friend. When, um, when my wife was uh, at school, she, um, she met some, she had some peers in her class who she was intrigued with. And they had this Christian group that she went along to, but they had a kind of something which intrigued her. And she started reading a book, um, which some of you may have come across, called um, Who Moved the Stone? Frank Morrison. Is that right, Frank Morrison? I think. Um, and, um, and she just sort of followed the implications of this through. Okay, it was Frank Morrison. He was a, a journalist, and he set out to disprove the resurrection, apparently, but became convinced of its truth. And, and Wendy read this, and she came to the conclusion, okay, I believe that. That seems right. Therefore, that Jesus is alive and in some way accessible to relationship. I think it was what made the difference for me as well. I mean, when did I met at Oxford? Um, but when I went up, I went with a whole scattering of, of uh, Christian stuff around me. Um, you know, in, in as much as I knew bits about the Bible and about church and about prayers and all sorts of things, you know, but I'd missed the central figure. Didn't have the middle piece of the jigsaw. Um, and only when I put that in place did the rest fit in. And I can remember, you know, wonderful, um, if anyone knows Oxford, you know, walking down the Abingdon Road to my digs uh, for two years uh, which, when I learned about prayer, um, or that a particular type of prayer anyway at that time. Um, and just that, that relationship in some way with the living God who I saw focused in Jesus, um, that was just remarkable and the basis of a, a long-time fascination with how to, how to pray. But we have uh, a friend, and, and sometimes it seems to be quite almost blasphemous to talk about friendship with God, because you know, another part of me says, hang on, you know, think of light coming from the, the Big Bang um, for 13.7 billion years at 186,000 miles per second, speed of light. Um, can I repeat that? 13.7 billion years at 186,000 miles a second. And if I'm saying God is the God of all that, the God of everything, then how can God be concerned about this young Oxford undergraduate walking down the Abingdon Road trying to pray? But then you say, you know, the light of the sun um, incredibly um, powerful at its source uh, and yet able to warm me on a beach in you know, Tenerife in my fantasy. <laughs> um, you know, so able to do the huge fusion um, of the sun and also the warming of, a, of somebody on a beach. God uh, similarly can encompass the whole. So friendship is appropriate. We have a friend. Second implication, um, we are an Easter people, and Alleluia is our song. Corporately, we are an Easter people. We won't always feel it, 
You know, we won't be bouncing around <clears throat> all the time. We mustn't overclaim our faith. You know, it'll always be joyful. Of course it won't. It'll be tough. Life will be tough. Everybody here will have had their tragedies. Uh, we know it's tough. But this Christian vantage point enables us to be on the mountaintop and to see the big picture uh, and to know that actually Alleluia is our song, uh, that Christ is risen. I think my, my kind of life verse, if you're allowed to have one, would be John 10.10. 10. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. That's, that's why I'm a, a, a priest and not a, a wealthy lawyer, as I set out to be. First degrees in law. Um, so here is a faith that makes us, in a sense, hungry for life. Um, John V. Taylor, one of my heroes of faith, um, he was a Bishop of Winchester, he'd been um, Chief Secretary, General Secretary of CMS, but um, he once said, let's try and get this right, um, it's long been my conviction that, that God is not terribly interested in whether we're religious or not. What he is interested in is whether we are alive or not. And he said, if your religion brings you more fully to life, then God will be in it. But if your religion diminishes your enjoyment of life or makes you run away from it, then God will be against it, just as Jesus was. And I think it is that, you know, God is interested in whether we are alive and the resurrection is the key to that, to our um, affirmation, enjoyment, uh, of life because if if it's true as when I was Bishop of Oxford we had our, our kind of strap line was um, you know our vision was the transformation of all human life under God the transformation of all human life that's huge <laughs> but that's what we was trying to say was that a healed creation will involve you know, politics and business and financial systems and um, you know, the, the legal system and economics and the arts and the environment and prison reform and everything, you know. It all matters. Matter matters. And that's because God has created and recreated uh, this good world um, and has a glorious plan for it. We are an Easter people and Alleluia is our song. It's a nice story of Mervyn Stockwood. He was the Bishop of... Um, of Southwark, and uh, it was an occasion when he was in uh, Moscow, in a time when communism still ruled, Brezhnev was president, and, um, and, and Mervyn Stockwood went downstairs um, from his hotel uh, to get a shave, because he, I don't know, lost his shaver or something, um, and he went down uh, to the hotel um, barbers to get a shave, and um, as he was having his shave, the, um, the person doing it for him saw his Episcopal cross, you know, and, and his ring. And, uh, and she said, uh, in some way, you know, Bishop? Um, and he said, yes. And so she, you know, she took it and she kissed it and so on. And then she held the razor aloft with half of Mervyn Stockwood's beard on it. Uh, and she just said, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And the rest of the barber shop said, he is risen indeed, hallelujah. And Mervyn Stockwood thought, 
Poor old Brezhnev. 60 years of communism and still the Galilean conquers. We are an Easter people. Third implication, uh, we do have a transforming agenda. We have something to live for um, that is really quite um, wonderful. And it is this transformation of all human life under God. I think I started out in ministry with only half a gospel. Um, I had this new experience of the Christian faith and I really wanted to share that. Um, I wanted people to uh, be invited into that experience. Um, But what I hadn't got was the whole social implication, the political implications of the gospel. Um, That if if God is as he is in Jesus, if the kingdom of God really is his, uh, his gift to us, God's gift to us, um, then that has implications for us doing the groundwork of the kingdom now. Us working on the foundations. Um, and so you know, I began to kind of work it out. Um, and therefore I've had lots of other heroes in my life. You know, Desmond Tutu, for instance. Um, lovely story of uh, Desmond Tutu, in, again, in a time of apartheid. Um, and he was... Um, there was a, a, going to be a big demonstration um, outside the cathedral uh, in Cape Town, uh, and the army and the police uh, cancelled it. So Desmond Tutu, as archbishop, invited them all in, everybody in, to the cathedral where they couldn't do any trouble, any harm, or at least he thought they couldn't. But they, the police and the and the army, uh, ringed the whole cathedral. Can you imagine us here? and the whole place surrounded uh, against the wall with these nasty-looking people with guns. And, um, and Desmond Tutu preached, and he really preached to them. And he said, uh, you are powerful. Well, at least you think you're powerful. But you're not God, he said, and God is not mocked. And I just want to tell you, you've already lost so he came up from behind his pulpit and he said, he said to them all, so, so why not come and join the winning side? Just a lovely confidence that nothing can resist the kingdom of God, ultimately. And it's that kingdom that we work for and it's that kingdom that Christians across the world um, give their lives for in compassion and in uh, and in working for social justice. Um, Why not join the winning side? Here's a fourth implication. Um, We bring hope to a world with very little hope. Christians are people of hope. And I think um, in a world where there's a lot of despair at the moment, it is a key gift that we can bring. Uh, We have to remind ourselves of why we have that hope, uh, perhaps quite often, as we see what's happening in the world around us. But, you know, we have this trajectory, this big arc, as it were, of, um, of world history, which we see in the light of the resurrection. So, you know, we, we have a story that's, that's historically rooted, um, the story of God, the story of Jesus. We have a present in which we are utterly committed to building the kingdom, or the foundations anyway. And we have a future that we know is safe in God's hands. Uh, we know the kingdom of God is unstoppable. It's just a matter of how we get there. So we have this whole arc, and, and our society and our culture lives so much in either just in the present, you know, experience without meaning, 
um, or else in the future um, and, and trying to bring on the future faster than we can assimilate it. And, and what we can do is to remind people of that whole trajectory, the whole arc of God's loving activity in history, in the present and in the future. Jim Wallace of the Sojourners, you may have heard of him, um, he wants to find hope like this. He said, hope uh, is believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. It's a nice description, I think. Hope is believing in spite of the evidence and then watching the evidence change. Um, and last of just five implications that I've chosen. You know, we can approach death um, with a kind of humble confidence. Um, we're coming before God, and, and no matter how, how much we know him now as Father, nevertheless, there is, in a sense, a judgment. You put yourself before God. Judgment doesn't mean condemnation, by the way. You know, um, judgment is, is neutral. Judgment is, is discernment, understanding, evaluation of a life. Uh, Condemnation is different. But, you know, um, there is a seriousness about coming before the Father uh, and to be known through and through. But it's being known by love. It just makes it so different. Um, I don't think I've got time to. I was going to give a lovely example from a friend of mine who's died recently, but who wrote such a beautiful, confident affirmation in it about his experience there. Because I, I want to read another poem. Um, uh, again, this is about implications, the implications of, um, uh, of the resurrection. But this is one by, by Gerard Kelly. And, and he's, his poem is just called, it's online, it's where I got it. It's called, Because He Is Risen. Because he is risen, spring is possible, in all the cold, hard places, gripped by winter. And freedom jumps the queue to take fear's place as our focus, because he is risen. Because he is risen, my future is an epic novel where once it was a mere short story. My contract on life is renewed in perpetuity. My options are open-ended. My travel plans are cosmic, because he is risen. Because he is risen, healing is on order and assured, and every disability will bow before the endless dance of his ability. And my grave too will open when my life is restored, for this frail and fragile body will not be the final word on my condition. Because he is risen. Because he is risen, hunger will go begging in the streets for want of a home and selfishness will have a shortened shelf life. And we will throng to the funeral of famine and dance on the callous grave of war. And poverty will be history in our history because he is risen. And because he is risen, a fire burns in my bones and my eyes see possibilities and my heart hears hope like a whisper on the wind. And the song that rises in me will not be silenced as life disrupts this shadowed place of death, like a butterfly under the skin, 
and death itself runs terrified to hide because he is risen. Let's just have a think, um, just a few final minutes, about um, the difference that the resurrection can make um, to our praying um, and, and what we you know, what we take seriously um, in our ongoing um, spiritual life. Whereas before that, can I just say, I wonder what you made of Easter, say only a week ago, um, in your home. Because I, you know, I, I think about what we do for Christmas, and, um, and we do loads, don't we? We don't do very much usually at Easter, but why not have Easter decorations as well as Christmas decorations? You know, the colours seem to be um, yellow and white. Why don't we have yellow and white streamers uh, in our houses and lots of daffodils and table decorations and you know, all sorts of things to actually make Easter decorations as well as Christmas decorations? When we have our Easter meal, big meal, I hope, um, why not have that really laid out as a spread? It'll be lamb, I hope, that's what we're supposed to have. Um, not if you're vegetarian, um, but you know, be a really nicely laid out. Um, why don't we have a one vacant seat there as well um, for the risen Christ? <laughs> and of course, we can give away that money too. That's a, a, an extra we can do. You know how we have um, crib scenes at Christmas? Why don't we have in each of our homes um, an Easter garden? we do in our churches why not just use a, a tray you know and some stones and um, a bit of moss and you know whatever um, as a reminder visual reminder in front of us all the time why don't we give Easter gifts like we give Christmas gifts but much simpler ones ones that kind of are more natural more life-affirming gentler simpler gifts uh, music, music, a good book, flowers, simple food, you know. Why don't we give gifts more often? So I just think we could, we could build Easter uh, a lot more than we do. But then prayer, how about going on with prayer? I, in terms of personal prayer, I, all, actually all corporate prayer, it's lovely for a, quite a long time after um, Easter to begin any encounter, the prayerful encounter, with um, you know, our, our Easter greeting, Alleluia, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed, Alleluia. Why, when we just meet each other as Christians, don't we greet each other like that? Instead of, you know, hi John, um, Alleluia, Christ is risen. Alleluia. You know, why don't we just greet each other um, like that? But certainly when we go to pray, um, it can be just helpful to break out of the kind of bland neutrality that we sometimes get into. Um, it can wake us up. We could also pray to the risen Christ. You know, we say, whatever you do, gracious God, almighty Father, you know, whatever your way in. But why not for that, for quite a period, just talk about, pray to the risen Christ. Just reminds us of that central truth of our, of our faith. Practicing the presence of God um, practicing the presence of the risen Christ. Um, you know, 
of Brother Lawrence, this uh, 17th century um, French monk who spent his life in the kitchens and said he found God just as much uh, in his kitchen as he did in, his, um, uh, in the chapel. And he could turn an omelette for the love of God uh, or pick up a, a straw from the floor for the love of God. But it was, he was conscious of God's presence with him all the time. Now, if we just practice the presence of the risen Christ uh, by our side um, to, during our ordinary days, it makes life good. Here's another thing, of course, and that's the Benedictine method of greeting, ev- meeting everybody who we come across as Christ, treating everyone we meet as Christ. It's tiring. <laughs> it's pretty demanding with some of the people you're going to meet, um, but it, is, it does make a real difference if you see the person you're meeting as Christ, not as you know, the person who's so irritating. Um, what about using, I, I use the uh, St. Patrick's breastplate quite often as a way into prayer as well. Um, you know, uh, Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all who love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. But the image of the embracing, the surrounding with the risen Christ um, is again a lovely, strong, but gentle image to take with you uh, into the day. Now, these are all just simple ways of um, reminding ourselves of the presence of the risen Christ. You know in, in Luke where the angels say, um, look, he's not here, he's risen, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, you'll see him there. When we pray at the start of the day, we can actually think through the day and think, um, He's risen. Uh, He's gone ahead of me into this day. I will meet him there. I'll meet him in that meeting. I'll meet him with that person. I'll meet him in that task I have. He's gone ahead of us. Um, We'll meet him there. So it's a way of starting the day, looking through the day prayerfully and with the reassurance that we will meet Christ there. Just using that bit of... And there are lots of other... The parts of um, uh, the, the resurrection narratives we can use in similar ways. So, just simply, well, there are lots more, but I've run out of time, so I'm not going to. But I do just want to use one more poem. Can I do that? I just think this is, this is lovely. This was a, um, a curative of mine in the Diocese of Oxford um, who wrote this poem. Um, she was an academic in the, in the um, university as well. Um, she wrote this poem, As From the Tomb. It is the tomb of Christ speaking. So it's a song for the tomb. Ages before Jerusalem was founded, I was formed for this day. God said, Shall these sea bones live? I will sculpt me a tomb, a lime white chamber fit for a king. I was ready when they brought him in bloody and broken, like a king from his last battle. Dusk was falling. They hurried, careful, so careful, they were brittle with pain. They straightened him, legs, arms, head, in the niche, 
stopped my mouth with a rock and crept away. We were quiet together. He slept inside me. I cradled him like an unborn child. Outside, earth shuddered. The sun failed. Stars shot like bolts through the warring heavens. I kept him safe till he began to stir like the child whose time has come. The deep places of creation whispered, open. A mighty spasm shook the stone. I gaped. He rose. For a moment he stood facing the dawn. Then he was gone. Later there would be angels, blazing eyed and docile, folding linen bandages. There would be men and women, storms of grieving, suddenly stifled. But first, as the sun rose, there was just light and silence. A cave empty and a world full of promises fulfilled. Do you think that's lovely? Just a lovely way of entering into that story from inside, from being the tomb. Look, I have one last thing to offer you and then see if there's any, um, anything you want to ask, come back on, say, comment on. Um, this is a, a, a diary entry. Um, it's a week in the life of death. And I'd like you just to travel with me and not judge the acting, okay? So this is death writing. Monday. Dear diary. It's me again. Death. Big D. What a day. Busy, busy, busy. Like yesterday. And the day before. And the day before that. Tragic cases, really. Uh, some so beautiful, some so young. I nearly wept, you know. But then I didn't bother. Well, must finish. Busy evening ahead. Tuesday. Dear diary. I th suppose you think it's a bit soft, really, death writing a diary. But I don't really get to stop in to greet anyone and chat with them. Oh, I meet people, you know, I, I meet everyone. The great philosophers, you know, the great teachers, the great professionals, you know, religious leaders. I meet them all. But it's all so brief and to the point. Always. Always. <laughs> Wednesday, dear diary. Two big battles fought today, one in, oh, thingamy, another in wherever. Now myself, I prefer famines and plagues. Good steady business with those. Battles, it's all just over in a moment, brushed off your feet. You know, Dara, I don't understand these people because you know, they, they spend half their time scared stiff of me trying to avoid me, and then they have a battle. Thursday, dear diary, 
death. The final frontier where Captain James T. Kirk most boldly go and boldly go. I'm pretty impressive really, don't you think? I'm really um, the ultimate statistic, you know? One in one die. <laughs> yeah, I like that. The ultimate statistic. Friday, dear diary. The ultimate here. But let's not be formal about this. You can call me <laughs> sir. Interesting day today. Carpenter's son from Nazareth. Been a lot of fuss about him. Died well. <laughs> if you can die well. <laughs> Bit like saying, I failed well. Bit like saying, I swallow dived off a hundred foot cliff into the yawning mouth of a great white shark and got full marks for style. <sighs> Saturday, dear diary. Funny feeling today. Like when you've eaten something that doesn't agree with you. Still, death must go on. It's much more sensible than saying life must go on. Drivel. Life must, life must grovel. I do feel strange. Sunday, Easter, Sunday, Jerusalem, Israel, AD 30. Dear diary. Jesus Christ. That's all I've got to say, really. <laughs> I've given you precisely five minutes to say or ask anything. Sorry. So if uh, anyone's got any questions, we've got a brief time for questions, if I could encourage you to keep them short. Please. Or comments, or anybody got any good experiences of how to keep Easter alive, you know, how to live Easter through the year. Um, what do you do? So, you know, share things or ask things if you've got anything. If not, don't worry. Sorry, yes. It's more of a comment, really. Yes. Sat there looking at my six Easter cards uh, on my fireplace, and I thought, oh, those are really nice. And then thought, but actually, I didn't send them at all. <laughs> so, thank you. Know, you. Yeah, they are there, they aren't they? Yep, there. yep. Search them out. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are. I mean, there are some fairly schmaltzy ones, yes, and <laughs> but um, there are some good ones too. So good, good to send. Thank you for that reminder. Yeah, please. Well, just an observation. You, I mean, you covered the huge um, scheme of things so well. I think actually, and I just noticed it this Easter, so I'll say it, there were some other people that are present on Easter Sunday who don't get 
that much of a mention, but which uh, is an important part of the story, and who we were there on night duty guarding the empty tomb. Right. And yeah. those and, and went back, and there's a real life story here because they took money to keep quiet. Yep. Mm. So there is mm. another angle. The world can be watching. So the soldier guards were probably just trying to do that. Mm. It's always good to, to enter these stories through the small characters, isn't it? And to, and to think, I wonder what this looked like from that angle. Um, and there are so many people who just get little mentions. Um, and you're absolutely right. Um, early evidence, I think, of the fearfulness of the Jewish authorities um, about this story that was getting around, that the body had gone, the tomb was empty. Um, yes, but we had put some uh, some guards there, but yes, they fell asleep. Uh, oh, we better say they were bright. We better give them money to keep quiet. I mean, there's a whole story in there. Um, thank you for that reminder. Yes, the little characters, they're very important. Um, yeah, I've forgotten that. Yeah, I won't go there. I can't get it right. Um, okay, anything else? If you are interested... Actually, oh, another thing I meant to mention. Um, in, in this book that I, I wrote, there are a lot of um, home group things as well. Four home group sessions based on the four different Gospels. Um, and also four sessions based on the arts. So, you know, there's poetry, music, um, painting and film. Um, and that's another way, I think, of keeping, uh, keeping things going um, by having you know, sessions after Easter, not just Lent groups, but after Lent groups on Easter. Let's dig into the story further and live it. Please. Yep. Yes. Good. Will you do it in your home as well as in church? That's the thing. Good. Excellent. I think that would be lovely to do. And I speak to myself about that because I haven't done that um, and must do it. <laughs> Last question, I think. Or comment. We've heard about a possible common date. Yes. One argument against that. For those of us who live in London, Richmond, Yorkshire will be a bit more difficult, is that we have here the amazing opportunity to go to the Greek, Russian, Serbian, yes. Romanian cathedrals yes. here in the centre of London yes. and celebrate Easter again. Yes. In the second. Yes. So personally, you know, in London for double Easter, oh. I hope that we. Uh, uh, from a selfish point of view, making my way to the Greek cathedral on May the 2nd mm. for the wonderful liturgy there. Mm. Um, I hope we don't um, have a common day. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good thought. I had not thought of that one. I, I'm with you. I once went to Thessalonica, uh, Thessaloniki, um, for their Easter, which was after hours, and, and it was wonderful. The place was packed out, 1,000 people in there. You know, we all had our candles, um, and, and we streamed out into the streets, and all the candles went out, <laughs> which is not the symbolism we wanted, um, of course. Uh, but it was, yes, it's just fabulous to be with other um, com- communities uh, at their Easter. So good point. Must write to Justin. Good. Anyway, thank you so much. Um, final word from our sponsor. <laughs> thank you very much.
Well, thank you very much for being with us today for this session, and thank you very, very much to Bishop John for his words to us and for everything that you've shared with us and for your really great ideas about ways to celebrate Easter. The book that uh, Bishop John has, has written, Living Easter Through the Year, is available here, and copies are for sale just at the end of this session. The next Sunday forum will be on the 1st of May, at which Jane Williams will be coming to speak to us about the Holy Spirit. The next Cathedral Floor event is on money and the Kingdom of God with Eve Poole and Angus Ritchie, and that takes place in just under two weeks' time on the 12th of April. And if you want any more information about these events or any future events, do go to the website um, on the St Paul's website for adult learning, but also do pick up a copy of the brochure, which has a listing of all our spring events available, and these are available on the table just here. So if you could join me, please, in thanking Bishop John for being with us today. (laughs) 